This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. It's time for the New Yorker. Since 1925, it's been the world's source for the finest in art and fiction, sophisticated reviews, humor, commentary, and news. Stay tuned for this week's Culture Blast from the one and only New Yorker, right now on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is the New Yorker, and I'm your reader, Dale, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I'll be reading from The New Yorker, dated January 29, 2024. And now, I'll begin with the talk of the town. Department of Knots, Stringing Along In 1979, the artist James Anoli Murphy tried out the idea of using string fig- figures, those cat's cradle games of loops and knots, to teach math to recalcitrant students. It is a pleasure, it is an act of meditation, and it is an entire ballet, a hand dance that you are doing, he said the other day, slipping a string off his wrist and sliding it around his crooked fingers. The students in the remedial topics in math class that he taught at LaGuardia, the city's performing arts high school, took to the approach. The dance department fell in love with me, he said. Murphy, who is Cherokee and wears his hair in a long white ponytail, retired from full-time teaching in 1996, but never stopped making string figures. A few years ago, he began using a spray-on acrylic fixative to preserve them. During the pandemic, he estimated he made about 1,500 figures in his Upper West Side apartment. He photographed them and began digitally stitching the images together to form constellations of figures that zoom out to reveal patterns, sinewy loops becoming a field of lace that expands into an amoeba-like colony of bulbous organisms. These are like little sacred clowns for me, he said, flipping through the photographs on an iPad. His string creations recently found a wider audience when the Whitney Museum asked him to lead a family workshop, part of the programming connected to Fragments of a Faith Forgotten, the Art of Harry Smith, an exhibition of the work of the Beat Polymath, which includes some of Smith's own string figures. Murphy, who is 85, arrived at the museum dressed in mismatched socks that coordinated with strings wrapped around his wrists. He knew Smith in the old days, the workshop would teach people how to make some basic string forms. This is not my art that I'm showing here. That's my art, he said, pointing to the iPad. But as an educator, he said, this is the culmination of what I've been trying to do. Families sprawled on rugs were already fiddling with museum-issued strings. The grown-ups squinted in confusion while the children whipped their hands through the air. Andrew Lampert, who has co-edited a book about Smith's string work, introduced the workshop. Harry Smith was fascinated with these games and string figure formations and sought to find out why they existed across so many different cultures, he said. Smith was a kid in the Pacific Northwest when he visited a reservation and saw Native Americans doing string figures. In the 1980s, when Murphy was diving deeper into strings, he looked up Smith, who was down on his luck and living on and off with Allen Ginsberg. Murphy wanted to see some out-of-print string workbooks in Smith's collection. 
He had them, but he wouldn't show them to me, Murphy said. He took notes on what I did. They began hanging out together anyway. I wasn't getting anything out of him, but I liked talking strings, and he liked talking strings, Murphy said. Andy liked beer. Ronnie Singh, the director of the Harry Smith Archive and a co-curator of The Whitney Show, smiled. Harry was a gleaner of information, not a sharer, she said. Last summer, Singh traveled to a string figure workshop in Zurich where she revealed the existence of a thousand-page manuscript by Smith detailing all his string knowledge. At the workshop, Murphy introduced himself and said, I just want you to see what it looks like live. With a flourish, he brandished a series of diamonds between his hands. The crowd gasped. Murphy flexed his wrists and the figure unraveled. As he moved on to the next figure, he noticed that no one was watching anymore. In my class, I would make everybody put the strings down when I talked, he said. He shrugged. They're playing with strings. They're not listening to me. It's just the way strings are. Around the room, ropey figures formed and then disappeared between flicking fingers, winking in and out like fireflies. There were occasional calls for help. Like a yoga instructor making adjustments, he obliged. Nancy Solomon Miranda, a teacher at PS146 in Brooklyn, watched from a chair at the side of the room. Murphy had taught strings to her fifth grade class before the pandemic. Math is extremely frustrating, she said. If you can work through your frustration with the strings, you probably can work through your frustration with math. While the group kept twiddling, someone asked Murphy, Do you know anything about string theory? Murphy shook his head. That's physics, he said. And that article was written by Sophia Hollander. Our next article is from The Critics on Books, titled Acid Reflux, When America First Went Tripping, and this article was written by Margaret Talbot. One evening in September of 1957, viewers across America could turn on their television sets and tune in to a CBS broadcast during which a young woman dropped acid. She sat next to a man in a suit, Sidney Cohen, the researcher who had given her the LSD. The woman wore lipstick and nail polish, and her eyes were shining. I wish I could talk in technicolor, she said, and at another point, I can see the molecules. I'm part of it. Can't you see it? I'm trying, Cohen replied. Were some families maybe, oh, I don't know, eating meatloaf on TV trays as they watched this nice lady undergo her mind-bending, molecule-revealing journey through inner space? Did they switch to Father Knows Best or the Perry Como show afterward? One of the feats that the historian Benjamin Breen pulls off in his lively and engrossing new book, Tripping on Utopia, Margaret Mead, The Cold War, and the Troubled Birth of Psychedelic Science, published by Grand Central, is to make a cultural moment like the anonymous woman's televised trip seem less incongruous, if no less fascinating. In Breen's telling, the button-down 1950s, not the freewheeling 1960s, brought together the ingredients, some of them toxic, for the first large-scale cultural experiment with consciousness-expanding substances. The psychedelic flowering of the 60s has, it turns out, a prequel, a rich and partly forgotten chapter before the hippie movement, before the shamanistic preening and posturing of Timothy Leary, and before the war on drugs shut all that down. 
This earlier history encompasses not only the now-notorious CIA research into mind-altering drugs, but also a lighter, brighter, more public dimension of better living through chemistry, buoyed by post-war scientific optimism and public reverence for expertise. Timothy Leary and the Baby Boomers did not usher in the first psychedelic era Breen writes. They ended it. So the era we're living in now is not the first in which LSD and other psychedelics were poised to enter the mainstream. In the 2020s, psychedelics sit comfortably within politely or courant circles of wellness culture, culture, startup capitalism, and clinical research. Some Gen Xers are as likely to try Ayahuasca for a midlife crisis or sub out their Lexapro for microdoses of LSD as they might once have been to troop into the woods behind campus the day after finals with a few friends and a freezer bag full of shriveled mushrooms. A number of recent studies have shown that psychedelics hold promise for treating depression, easing end-of-life anxiety, and helping people cope with grief. The best-selling 2018 book about this new science and its ramifications, How to Change Your Mind, by Michael Pollan, has been so influential in peaking hopes for hallucinogens that scientific papers have identified what they call the pollen effect. It describes the high expectations that some subjects bring to psychedelic studies, which can potentially influence how they report their experiences. In 2019, Denver became the first U.S. city to decriminalize the use of psilocybin, the psychoactive compound in hallucinogenic hallucinogenic mushrooms. And in 2020, Oregon became the first state to legalize it for use in therapy. Voters in several other localities, from Santa Cruz to Detroit to Washington, D.C., have since approved similar initiatives. This year, the FDA will consider approving MDMA, the drug many of us know in its street form as ecstasy and may still associate with raves, for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Even big pharmaceutical companies are looking to get in on the action. The contemporary psychedelic movement shimmers, in other words, with next big thing energy, much of it centered less on freestyle tripping than on medicalized treatment. But Breen, a professor at UC Santa Cruz, whose previous book was on the history of the global drug trade, establishes that the feeling of deja vu is real. We have been on this trip, or a version of it, before. For anyone who has closely followed the sinuous cultural, legal, and scientific saga of LSD, the outlines of its story will not come as a revelation. The CIA's MKUltra program, which headed by the chemist Sidney Gottlieb, conducted covert experiments into mind control via hypnosis and psychoactive drugs, has attracted many chroniclers since it first came to light in the mid-70s. Recent examples include the investigative reporter Stephen Kinzer in the 2019 book Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control, and the documentarian Errol Morris with his eerie six-part Netflix series Wormwood about Frank Olson, a biowarfare scientist and CIA employee who plunged to his death from a Manhattan hotel room in 1953 nine days after Gottlieb furtively dosed him with LSD. Breen extends this hall of mirrors, though. For one thing, he anoints the anthropologist Margaret Mead and her third husband, 
Gregory Bateson as the book's principals, a role he allows they would likely have been surprised by. It's true that they don't turn up much in previous histories of psychedelics. They belong here as spiritual guides weaving in and out of a checkered story. Breen explains, owing to their shared vision of science as a tool for expanding human consciousness. Mead, for one, thought it was crucial that, as she wrote, we reach an awareness which will give us a new control over our human destiny and learn consciously to create civilizations within which an increasing proportion of human beings will realize more of what they have it in them to be. Her study of trance states in Bali and elsewhere was part of a long-standing interest in psychedelics. After conducting fieldwork with the Omaha people in Nebraska in the 1930s, she wrote respectfully about their ritual use of peyote to promote social cohesion, foster enlightenment, and respond to social stresses. In the mid-50s, by which time Mead was a well-known public intellectual, she was intrigued enough by LSD to observe its administration to a young volunteer in an MKUltra lab experiment. Drugs, such as LSD, could be integrative and insight-giving, she wrote in a letter to a colleague, so long as they were pursued in a responsible experimental spirit. Mead told other colleagues that she planned to take LSD herself. What ultimately dissuaded her, Breen suspects, was the drug's reputation as a truth serum. In 1955, five years after her marriage to Bateson dissolved, Mead would, would move in with her romantic partner, Rhoda Metro, an anthropologist. They lived together for the next 20 years. Mead had close relationships with CIA and other government officials. She had a security clearance. She was a prominent and widely admired scientist. She must have worried, Breen argues, that she'd risk it all by letting slip an avowal of her bisexuality. Bateson was an anthropologist who developed a specialty in systems theory and cybernetics, and he served in the OSS, the precursor of the CIA during the Second World War. He mainly worked on propaganda missions in Burma, but his stint in the agency brought him into contact with intelligence figures who were interested in the military applications of mind-altering drugs. He and Meade remained in touch with these shadowy figures and with a broader circle of researchers who met regularly at influential conferences sponsored by the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation on subjects such as neuroscience, cybernetics, hallucinogens, and the future. In 1959, Bateson set Allen Ginsberg up on the poet's first psychedelic trip at a lab near Palo Alto. It was astounding, Ginsberg wrote home to his father, a schoolteacher in Patterson, New Jersey. I lay back listening to music and went into a sort of trance state, and in a fantasy much like a Coleridge world of Kublai Khan, saw a vision of that part of my consciousness which seemed to be permanent, transcendent, and identical with the origin of the universe, a sort of identity common to everything, but a clear and coherent sight of it. Rather beautiful visual images also of Hindu-type gods dancing on themselves, Ginsberg urged his father, who was also a poet, to try it. Less successfully, Bateson worked for a time with the marine researcher and inventor of the sensory deprivation tank, John Lilly, who once administered LSD to dolphins. It's a sad story. 
Four of the seven dolphins subsequently died, or as Lily put it, delusively committed suicide by refusing to eat or breathe. Both Bateson and Mead had entanglements with the dark side of what Breen calls the psychedelic Cold War. They were personally and professionally close to top MK Ultra personnel. Still, they remained the most sympathetic figures in the book thanks to their open-minded fascination with cultural differences, their fluid conceptions of gender and sexuality, and their dedication to facts. Timothy Leary would argue, for instance, that homosexuality was a pathology that LSD could cure, he claimed. Oops, that it had cured Allen Ginsberg. By contrast, Mead, who was a generation older, appeared in 1961 on a nationally syndicated TV broadcast, The Rejected, where, Breen writes, she surrounded herself with New Guinean artifacts and challenged the notion that homosexuality and transgender identities were unnatural rather than part of the rich diversity of human potential. Bateson, for his part, dragged a heavy weight of family expectations around with him most of his life. He was one of three sons born to William Bateson, a prominent English biologist. He was the first to use the term genetics to describe the study of heredity, who wanted all three to make great scientific discoveries. But both of Bateson's brothers died young, one in a hopeless infantry charge just a few weeks before the end of of the First World War, and one by suicide four years later. As Breen tells it, Bateson's preoccupation with attaining the scientific glory for which he and his brothers were destined led him down some blind alleys, including a misconceived family dynamics theory of the etiology of schizophrenia and that unfortunate spell with Lily. But Bateson could also be remarkably prescient, At an ultra-hip 1967 conference in London called The Dialectics of Liberation, it was attended by, among others, the black power leader Stokely Carmichael, the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, the anti-psychiatry crusader Artie Lang, and Ginsburg. Bateson gave a speech about fossil fuel-caused global warming in what one historian thinks might have been the first instance of climate change being discussed before a lay audience. Bateson lamented that people were seeking shortcuts to wisdom through LSD, but given the environmental catastrophe we faced, he said he could understand the impulse. Breen has an eye for the telling detail and a gift for introducing even walk-on characters with Rio. One is George Hunter White, a former narcotics investigator from Pasadena who ran some of the real-world testing of LSD for the CIA, setting up bachelor pads in the West Village and in the Marina neighborhood of San Francisco, where unsuspecting individuals could be surreptitiously dosed with the drug in their drinks, food, or cigarettes, while agents observed and secretly recorded their behavior. Breen offers this quick, memorable sketch— The 35-year-old White, who has been likened to an extremely menacing bowling ball, had pale blue Siberian husky eyes set in a gin-blossomed face, a boundless appetite for intoxicants, and a lifelong fascination with Chinese culture. One impression such portraits leave the reader with is that the 1950s and the early 60s were much weirder than you might imagine if you were still taking your cues from the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. 
People who worked with psychedelics seem to have been especially adroit at projecting authoritative normality while conducting some very screwy and sometimes quite sinister business behind the scenes. Harold Abramson, a low-profile physician at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, whose expertise was in allergies, led a life that was outwardly conventional, a model of mid-century domesticity. He and his wife, who had four children, collected Japanese netsuki carvings, carefully cultivated the lawn of their palatial home in suburban Long Island, and he played bridge with their neighbors once a week. But Abramson was also a chemical weapons expert who fed LSD to the Siamese fighting fish he kept at his lab, as well as to willing guests at his dinner parties, and played a key role in the MK Ultra program. Breen thinks he may have been the most influential researcher into psychedelics of the 20th century. And yet, the late 50s and early 60s were also a kind of golden age for Ernest out in the open exploration of psychedelics. Chemist at Sandoz Laboratories in Basel, Switzerland, first synthesized an experimental compound known as lysergic acid diethylamide in 1938. By 1949, little bottles of the stuff were rolling off a Swiss assembly line bound for labs and doctor's offices around the world. Officially, only licensed physicians who were engaged in research could get hold of it, but it didn't take long for it to filter into other networks. In a period before the development of modern antidepressants or indeed of many psychoactive drugs at all, boom times were on the way, starting with the first tranquilizers to come on the market in the early 60s, but they hadn't quite arrived yet. LSD seemed like a wonder drug, radiant with scientific promise. Aldous Huxley, in his 1954 memoir, The Doors of Perception, could compare psychedelics favorably to alcohol and barbiturates. To most people, Huxley wrote, mescaline is almost completely innocuous. Psychedelics, for many who tried them, held not only the promise of fixing a clinical problem, but of opening those doors of perception to some noumenal realm otherwise hidden to us. After taking a tiny amount of LSD, Huxley recalled that what came through the closed door was the realization, not the knowledge, for this wasn't verbal or abstract, but the direct total awareness from the inside, so to say, of love as the primary and fundamental cosmic fact. It was true that people sometimes freaked out on trips that seemed to mire them in apocalyptic hellscapes. The disillusion of ego commonly experienced on acid, a sensation that the CIA wanted to put to use for interrogation purposes, could be frightening. But people who experimented willingly with LSD often reported feelings of warm, oceanic well-being, or images of incomparable, redemptive beauty. In 1959, Cary Grant gave a series of interviews to a newspaper columnist in which he revealed that he had been transported by LSD. All the sadness and vanities were torn away, he said. I was pleased by the hard core of strength I found inside me. On his 72nd trip, Grant, speaking into a dictaphone in the office of his Beverly Hills doctor, riffed on spaceflight and Hegelian dialects. Everything creates its opposite, he said, and therefore cyclically itself. I like thinking of Grant wearing an ascot, perhaps intoning these dreamy revelations in clipped patrician tones. 
Claire Booth Luce, the former Republican congresswoman and ambassador and the wife of the publishing tycoon Henry Luce, became an LSD booster, turning to it many times for relief from depression and grief over her daughter's death in a car accident. And she was quite the establishment figure. While tripping on acid for the first time, she had to refuse a phone call from Vice President Richard Nixon, who was seeking her political advice. By the mid-60s, though, LSD was taking on a new aura, gaining a groovy reputation as a pathway to utopia. The Pied Piper of that movement was Leary, who co-founded the Harvard Psilocybin Project in 1960. In a 1967 debate with the neuroscientist Jerome Letvin, Leary declared that the real goal of the scientist is to flip out. LSD cut loose from its medical moorings and ties to power, acquired a lasting association with hippie youth, which in turn made it more vulnerable to moral panics and political crackdowns. By the end of 1967, several states had banned psychedelics, and in 1970, Congress classified them as Schedule I drugs, connoting no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. In 1971, President Nixon declared a war on drugs, including heroin and marijuana, but also LSD, the substance that his old friend Claire Booth Luce had taken and touted and that medical authorities had once embraced as a psychiatric drug of great promise. Does it matter for our present moment that psychedelics had a respectable, scientifically sanctioned past? Today, there is much enthusiastic media coverage about so-called classical psychedelics, such as LSD and psilocybin, and newer ones, such as MDMA, focusing on their specific mental health applications, studies showing that they help some people with treatment-resistant depression and so on. Since they pose little risk of addiction, since depression and anxiety are on the rise, and since the pharmaceuticals we have at our disposal don't work for everybody or sometimes cause unwelcome side effects, this focus makes sense. More broadly, for many people now, psychedelics might evoke an association with wellness, the kind of purposeful, holistic hygiene a person might also pursue through silent retreats, mindful eating, or yoga. It's worth remembering that LSD was never fully medicalized, not even in the late 1950s, the first heyday of legal and scientific psychedelics research. One important contributor to the field, the psychologist Betty Eisner, helped develop the idea that set and setting shape the quality of psychedelic therapy. The emphasis she placed on soft lighting, comfortable furnishings, and the right music, customized for the individual, helped determine the protocols used today. According to Ido Hartosogun's book, American Trip, from 2020, Eisner found that Beethoven concertos were preferable to Gregorian chants, which often evoked strong feelings of guilt. But Eisner's own approach to psychedelic experiences became increasingly mystical, In 1964, she wrote to a colleague that she had become interested in material revealed on trips that seemed to come from past lives and certain aspects of the patient, which appear to come from outer space. In short, psychedelics have never been and will never be like other pharmaceuticals. 
Although efforts to bring psychedelics to the market as FDA-approved psychiatric treatments are well underway, it is doubtful whether the category of prescription drug will ever be able to contain them because of their varied uses, Breen observed in an essay for the Washington Post last year. Neither, though, are they likely to reemerge as modern-day accessories to spiritual trance states, the sort of shamanistic practices in which, as Mead had written, people take a great many precautions in selecting and ritually training those who will engage regularly in trance and in controlling where and under what circumstances trance may be induced. Inasmuch as psychedelics generate both medical interventions and spiritual quests, and maybe other experiences as well then, as Breen says, we may need new categories to accommodate them. One of the striking motifs in Breen's book is the optimism with which many of the scientists he writes about, including Mead, saw the future. Psychedelics were among the forces that they believe could heal cultural rifts and advance the evolution of civilizations. It's hard to imagine replicating that kind of optimism today. We know far too much to trust in the purity of science, the transparency of government, the goodwill of pharmaceutical companies, or the power of individual enlightenment to melt cultural barriers and repair the world. But perhaps there's hope in the kind of skepticism that can make us approach matters in smarter ways this time around. Reading about the recent studies of LSD's positive effects, for example, we know to be at least a little circumspect. Many of the studies involve a small number of subjects who've been very tightly screened. It's hard to keep such research double-blind since people in the placebo arm of a hallucinogenic trial can often guess that they didn't get the stuff that would have made them trip. A recent academic article by two psychologists at Leiden University Mikiel Van Elk and Eiko Elfried identified no fewer than 10 pressing challenges to the validity of current psychedelic studies, including conflicts of interest, especially since pharmaceutical companies have joined academic groups in conducting them, inadequate reporting of adverse events, small sample sizes, lack of long-term follow-up, and the difficulty of creating persuasive placebos. But Van Elk and Fried are not raising these problems to try to shut down psychedelic research. They aim to improve its rigor and credibility with specific recommendations. Our hope is that new studies may find credible evidence that psychedelic therapy can be a useful tool for specific groups of patients. In 1966, Sidney Cohen, Eisner's colleague and the psychiatrist who had provided Luce with her LSD, expressed his worry that psychedelic research had gone astray. We are seeing accidents happen. We are frightening the public. We are getting laws passed banning the drug. We are not using the anthropological approach of insinuating a valuable drug of this sort into our culture, gradually demonstrating the goodness of the thing. Maybe we know enough now to proceed not with messianic hype, but with testable hope, the kind that won't risk a war on drugs backlash or promise utopia, or put powerful hallucinogens into the hands of clandestine medical ethics flouting researchers, but that could still end up demonstrating the goodness of the thing. The next article under books titled Double Vision. 
The Mystique of Twins, and this article was written by Perul Segal. Half a century later, they still return our gaze, staring back at us in their dark dresses and white stockings, their white headbands pinned in place. The seven-year-old identical twins, Kathleen and Colleen Wade, stand side by side, pressed together as if to create the illusion that they are conjoined. One twin smiles, the other appraises the photographer. There are remnants of chocolate cake in the creases of their mouths. Diane Arbus took this portrait, identical twins, Roselle, New Jersey, 1966, at a Christmas party for families of multiples held at a Knights of Columbus Hall. She'd been lurking at such events, prospecting for twins and triplets. Through her viewfinder, the sisters appear less like two separate children than like split aspects of the same soul, simultaneously innocent and foreboding. I mean, it resembles them, their father told a reporter at a 2005 retrospective of Arbus's work. But we've always been baffled that she made them look ghostly. None of the other pictures we have of them looks anything like this. The photograph reportedly inspired Stanley Kubrick's depiction of the Eerie Sisters in The Shining. In How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins, published by Bloomsbury, Helena Dobress aims to rescue twins from the gothic, from horror movies, and from singleton security, the better to return our gaze and testify to the experience of twindom from the inside out. Debress invokes twins from life and legend, the conjoined twins Chang and Ang Bunker, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, her own identical twin and herself, to examine how multiples complicate our notions of personhood, attachment, and agency. Twins have been critical to our understanding of ourselves, she argues. They are present in the founding myths of great cities. Romulus and Remus gave us Rome. The twins of the Hindu epic, the Ramayana, Lava, and Kusha, established Lahore and Kasur. Twins have been worshipped, killed at birth, paraded as curiosities, pricked and probed and experimented on. They have been treated as subhuman and superhuman and seen to personify every possible duality, collaboration and bitter competition, the purest as well as the most morbidly enmeshed forms of love and they continue to unsettle our notions about where bodies end and begin and whether personalities, even fates, are forged or found. The Minnesota study of twins, Reared Apart, launched in 1979, famously found striking similarities in the lives of of its subjects. The study began in response to the case of a set of identical twins who were separated at birth and reunited at 39, the Jim Twins. It emerged that both were given the same name and that each had first married a woman named Linda and then a Betty. Each named his dog Toy and his son James Allen, spelled A-L-A-N, or James Allen, spelled A-L-L-A-N. They drove the same kind of car, enjoyed the same hobbies, worked in the same field, and even vacationed at the same beach in Florida. The twin study provided a data-driven heritability index for such features as job satisfaction, schizophrenia, propensity to divorce, and alcoholism. And there were other perplexing parallels. Pairs of reunited twins discovered sharing such rituals as flushing the toilet before using it and insisting on walking into the ocean backward. How to be multiple has a twin of its own, 
Twinkine, The Singular Significance of Twins, published by Princeton, by William Viney, a handsomely produced anthology of twin representations, vaudeville performers, subjects of torture, and yes, the blue dresses with the puff sleeves worn by the shining twins. Vining also collaborates with his identical twin, who contributes a foreword. The two books share many sources, and the same data crop up, the same stories and studies. You'll find the same gentle injunction to contemplate and to learn from the fractal nature of twin identities. When twins aren't being regarded as carbon copies, they are slotted, or slot themselves, into opposing roles, which Debray's use as an entry point for a chapter on the psychology, the temptations, and the costs of binary thinking. In her own family, Debray's became the writer and the introvert, while her twin Julia was the artist and the adventurer. Evidently, this is a standard division of roles. One twin becomes minister for the exterior, in the psychologist René Zazo's view, and the other is minister for the interior. For the Debrest sisters, this cleft formed early. In The Wind in the Willows, I was mole to Julia's ratty. In The House at Pooh Corner, piglet to Julia's Pooh. Julia got Mickey Mouse, I got Donald Duck. I got Bert, she got Ernie. Debrace explains, I went for the cautious, anxious, or melancholy types, the ones who trotted after the sunny or manic hero, providing assistance and advice and raising useful objections. The book itself began life as a way for the sisters to work together during the pandemic. Julia is a linguistics lecturer in New Zealand and contributed illustrations. Debrace, who teaches philosophy at Wellesley, lives in Massachusetts. As a philosopher, she is drawn to a metaphysics of twinhood. Can personhood be spread across two bodies? Do we ever freely choose when so much about us exists outside our control? She illuminates her discussions with stories from a close and cloudless sibling bond. She makes me feel my membership status in the universe is active, as if I've already passed some crucial cosmic test and every later qualification is optional, Debray writes of her sister. Just thinking of her calms me down the way I imagine the thought of God, Gaia, or external flux does for believers, mystics, and Buddhists. Such equanimity is merely one of the apparent benefits conferred by twindom. On average, adult twins seem to be healthier and more content than singletons. They have higher life expectancies and a lower incidence of suicide. The benefits are particularly notable in the case of male twins, one theory being that they take fewer physical risks out of concern for their twins' feelings. For the love of Zeus, Debrus imagines a modern-day Pollux bellowing at Castor, Step away from that chariot, bro! Debray's relationship with her sister only deepens with time as they endure complications from a shared disability and both come out later in life. They also retain their effortless capacity to collaborate. We executed our missions jointly with almost no friction, she writes. It was like having an extra jetpack strapped to your will. One wishes occasionally that Debrace had a navigation device along with the jetpack. She is a vivacious, self-aware, busy writer, tap-dancing to hold our attention, following every moment of philosophy with a joke. In one case, a playful exegesis of the Drake verse, if you had a twin, I would still choose you. 
She also packs our itinerary too ambitiously. We sometimes find ourselves in thickets of debates miles from our putative subject. For all that, she stitches the project together with Brio, a sense of stupefied luck at having a twin, and an insistence that anyone can reap similar benefits by acknowledging our interdependence, relaxing the need to believe in our singularity. The traditional Western picture is surely right about something. Intimate relationships can result in domination, even annihilation, she writes. But our culture tends to take that concern to extremes. Why think that autonomy and sociality are always opposed, that mutual enmeshment must ever reduce the self rather than expand it? Maybe if we were less defensive about our boundaries, less inclined to fear those who challenge our sense of who we are, we'd be less likely to marginalize and stigmatize those we see as different from us. It's an unimpeachable aim. Who would be so churlish as to find fault? I don't quite, but flickering along the edges of DeBress's enthusiasm, something flashes, a glimpse of another story, something shyer, lonelier, unformed, motivated more by puzzlement than by prescription. A photograph is a secret about a secret, Diane Arbus once said. The more it tells you, the less you know. A book can be the same. I was likely a twin once, a fact I learned only recently when I underwent routine testing during a pregnancy. Genetically distinct DNA was detected and explained to me as being the possible remnant of a prenatal twin, a boy, who did not survive and whose tissue I had absorbed into my own. It has been estimated that some 15% of us were once a twin. One theory holds that all left-handed singletons are the surviving members of a vanished twin pair. We can add this figure to the rise in actual twin births in industrialized countries in the three decades after 1980. The incidence of twins in the U.S. roughly doubled, reflecting the use of assisted reproduction and women choosing to have children later in life, which increases the odds of multiples. Only in the past few years has the incidence begun to drop. We have evidently reached peak twins. If twins are no longer very rare, statistically speaking, DeBrace is intent on stressing their distinctiveness, bordering on an Arbus-like sense of freakishness. We identical twins then are tricky, disruptive, even seditious creatures. We are the perfect crime. Most people only run into us occasionally, but the experience of doing so, or the simple idea of twins, can inflame broader anxieties about the fragility of everyone's capacity to stably identify anyone. At such moments, she steps on her own feet, complaining that twins have been scrutinized and exoticized while resolutely doing just that. The temptation, of course, is real. It is an eerie feeling thumbing through twin kind to realize how its images of twins tend to show them as arbusted, shoulder to shoulder, facing the viewer, presenting themselves for our inspection. Only a handful of show twins looking at each other. And how different those tender images of mutual regard feel. They lack the charge of the conventional twin pose, underscoring the tension viney remarks between the actual mundane nature of being a twin and the titillated fascination it inspires. To DeBress, twins amount to a minority group. They are, she writes, othered and policed. Even as she borrows the terms, she immediately amends, to be clear, this other's 
othering reaches nothing like the oppression faced by racial and gender minorities, disabled people, and women. There's no widespread asymmetrical power structure with singletons at the top and twins at the bottom. Twins aren't at a greater risk of violence or abuse than non-twins. Yet again, she wheels around to claim it's not only our bodies, but also our hearts and souls that are under suspicion. As evidence, she quotes Petrushka from Dostoevsky's The Double, who is no one's idea of a sane character witness. Good people live honestly. Good people live without any faking, and they never come double. As the reasoning rises around, one fact becomes clear. For DeBrest, to be a twin was to be seen. It was indeed the social currency she possessed, as she reveals with self-deprecating charm. She recalls how, as flower girls in matching dresses, she and Julia coolly dominated a wedding, how in school being a twin meant that everyone knew who they were, though not necessarily who we each were, giving them a lifetime backstage pass to semi-coolness. She and Julia performed their twinhood energetically, auditioning to be twin presenters for a teenage breakfast program, serving as extras in a television show featuring twin contestants, endlessly performing twin tuition. Even today, she mentions my twin sister on her website. These details exemplify so many of the themes of the book, including the more elastic form of personhood that twins can share. But at the margins of these cheerful stories of twindom, DeBress allows us glimpses into open, unresolved questions that she has about herself, her discomfort with sex and the body when she was younger, her appetite for solitude, her tendency to push people away, all our troubles massing at the borders of the single self. As a we, as a multiple, DeBress is all strength, but despite her thesis, this twin's capacity for closeness, trust, and collaboration does not prove so easily transferable to others. Could it be otherwise for a philosopher twin? Her accident of birth sent so many questions spinning into the air. Twins remain a potent and beguiling symbol. Even now, they have the power to unsettle and surprise. Not even twins are immune. In high school, DeBress and Julia once found themselves in adjacent bathroom stalls without knowing it. They threw open the doors at the same time. Confronted in the mirror by two identical 15-year-olds in identical school uniforms, they screamed. And now this article from the current cinema titled, Not Long for This World. And this is a review of the movies Totem and ISS and was written by Anthony Lane. The heroine of Totem, a new film from the Mexican director Lila Avalaez, is a girl by the name of Solicito, played by Naima Sentis, or Sol for short. We are never told her age, seven or eight perhaps, though she's one of those naturally grave children who seem a little older and wiser than they ought or would choose to be. In Soul's case, the wisdom is hard won. She has moments of foolery and giggling, but much of the time she keeps quiet or abstracts herself from the proceedings. The final third of the movie depicts a birthday party for her father, Tonatia, or Tona, played by Mateo Garcia Alejandro. And where do we find Soul as the revels get underway? Roosting on high at rooftop level, gazing down at the fun. Somebody sends a camera up on a drone for a laugh to capture Soul on her perch, 
Stop filming me, she exclaims. Leave me alone. The tenor of totem in which the solemn is wreathed with the festive is established in an early scene. Soul is being driven to the party by her mother, Lucia, played by Ayazua Larios, and they play a game in the car, hold your breath, and make a wish. Soul without prompting admits, I wished for daddy not to die. Tona has cancer, and when we meet him, we believe as much. He is little more than a skeleton with a smile, and this birthday will almost certainly be his last. Hence the family that assembles around him, later swelled by friends. Tona's siblings include Alejandra, played by Marisol Gaz, who is first seen dyeing her hair, and Nuri, played by Montserrat Maronon, who is baking a cake and icing it to resemble Van Gogh's Starry Night, an excuse mainly to stay in the kitchen and get drunk. Also present is Nuri's daughter, Esther, played by Sayora Gerza, who is younger than Sol and more clinging. She sits atop the fridge holding a cat and hangs on to her mother's legs when Nuri tries to leave the room. Tona's elderly father, Roberto, played by Alberto Amador, is there too, with a face of thunder obsessively clipping a bonsai tree. Has he always, we wonder, been so impossible to please? Avalea's previous movie, The Chambermaid, in 2019, was set in a hotel in Mexico City and shot with an astringent care. The most genial of its stars, Teresita Sanchez, returns here in the role of Cruz, Tona's nurse, who is the soul of sensible patience. Notice how calmly she mentions as the party winds down that she hasn't been paid in two weeks. Totem is more relaxed than the chambermaid, often crowded but rarely confounding, and Avileus homes in on solitary figures amid the throng. The camera watches, weaves, and waits, not so much sticking its nose in like a meddlesome guest as making sure that people are attended to if only with a glance. Should their actions be of no great consequence, better still, look at Roberto straining to pull on a sock or soul taking a furtive slug of wine and pulling a face. At one point, the adults do that stupid thing of parceling their speech into bits, chemotherapy, in the hope that the kids won't understand what's going on. Yeah, right. Soul listens in and instantly breaks the code. Parents in the audience will recognize the dilemma. When you lock children out from what you fear they cannot bear to learn, are you protecting them or storing up harm in their hearts? And don't they always turn the key and find out anyway? The surprising thing about this film, given its potential for devastation, is how funny it can be. As you'd imagine, the humor wells up from anxiety. That's why Alejandra, the most credulous of the grown-ups, hires a psychic to walk around the house and cleanse it of bad energy. This involves belching, buckets of water, and the ceremonial torching of a bread roll, summarized by Roberto as satanic bullshit, and costs two and a half thousand pesos. I also sell Tupperware, the psychic adds, and all on the day of a party. What Tona's loved ones are doing, of course, as recorded by Totem in a welter of detail, is fending off the prospect of his death by cluttering his environment with life. For good measure, some of that life is animal. The cat shatters the fourth wall as cats will. Soul receives a goldfish named Nugget, which doesn't bode well. A shy scorpion scurries into the, a crack, and the end credits are punctuated by drawings of various creatures. 
The only performance is that of a stick insect which keeps waving its arms about or its legs. It should have paid attention in drama class. There isn't much music in Totem, and what there is gets piled up in the closing stretch. In an extraordinary act of ventriloquism, we hear a rendition of Spargi the Maro Pianto, sprinkled with bitter crying, from the mad scene in Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor. Raise your hand if you were expecting that. Who the ventriloquist is and how the aria slots into the plot, I leave for you to discover. Suffice to say that somehow, for reasons that I'm mulling over, the madness touches the quick of this sad and lively tale. All that remains is for the film's composer, Thomas Becca, to herald the climax with a surge of sounds at once jungly and industrial, and for Soul, a hauntingly thoughtful child rather than a dreamy one, with way too much on her mind, to stare straight at us by the light of the candles on her father's cake. She doesn't want them or anything else to be snuffed out. If you seek another awkward social gathering on a slightly higher plane, try Gabriella Cowperwaith's latest movie, ISS. The title refers not to the Intercollegiate Socialist Society, which ceased to exist under that name in 1921 and could probably use revival, but to the International Space Station, the clunky modular construction orbiting our planet at a distance of some 250 miles that has become a byword for harmony and peace. I mean, where else can you go to the toilet in a module called Tranquility? Ten years, awo- ten years ago, Cowperwaith made a serious splash with Blackfish, a documentary about the treatment of killer whales in captivity. When I first heard about this new project, I hoped foolishly but fervently that she might have hitched a ride on a shuttle and smuggled her cameras onto the actual ISS. Where better to study the feral behavior of trapped humans? No such luck. Instead, this is a feature film with actors portraying a resonant crew of six, three Russians plus or increasingly versus three Americans. Just arrived on board is Dr. Kira Foster, played by Ariana DeBose, Moviegoers will recognize DeBose from West Side Story in 2021, in which, as Anita, she sported a bright yellow halter neck dress as opposed to a spacesuit. She also remarked to Tony after he met and made nice to Maria, Do you want to start World War III? Fancy that. Here is World War III in all its finery. Gazing out of the cupola, the primary viewing platform on the ISS, Kira notices a sudden fiery bloom of what she takes to be a volcano down on the surface of the earth. Then another bloom, and another. Holy smoke, it's the jets and the sharks all over again, this time with nuclear warheads. Before long, most of the world is lit up by conflagrations, and the film is graced with an unintended and somewhat unfortunate irony. From afar, the apocalypse is quite a pretty sight. At this juncture, you might think the astronauts should thank their lucky stars. How about clubbing together to enjoy their heavenly haven away from the inferno? Not a chance. The senior American on the station, Barrett, played by Chris Messina, receives a secret message, presumably from a government bunker, with an instruction. Your new objective is to take control of the ISS. Meanwhile, his Russian counterpart, Pulov, played by Kosta Ronin, gets much the same order from his terrestrial superiors. 
The rest of the movie finds the two teams tussling for supremacy with only Kira and her opposite number, Vetrov, played by Masha Mashkova, known as Nika, risking a tenuous pact. To be on the ISS, according to Nika, can be a spiritual awakening. No longer. Now it's a straight fight. As a thriller, regrettably, ISS fails to fulfill its mission. Any air of plausibility soon leaks out of the plot, and the whole thing drifts into silliness tricked out with familiar tropes. As any sci-fi fan can tell you, spacewalks never go as planned, and we even get a close-up of someone deciding whether or not to snip a crucial wire. Now and then, however, there are fragments of authentic strangeness and wit with a documentarian's hungry eye, Cowper, Cowperwaith feeds on the challenges of zero gravity. If you're dozing off, for instance, and you don't fancy being cocooned like a pupa in a vertical sleeping bag stuck to a wall, your other option is to float in a fetal curl as if awaiting birth. In the matter of death, look and learn as one astronaut stabs another in the neck with a screwdriver. Blood, rather than spurting or flowing, emerges in little red bubbles, life just fizzing away. Most teasing of all is a conversation about sex in space. I can't say that physics is exactly on your side up here, Kira says. Moonshots and money shots. If any film cries out for a sequel, sequel, it's this one. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Dale with The New Yorker. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.